Welcome to Balance of Power on 1039-1450-WKXL-NHTalkRadio.com and 1450 wkxl wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Kale, joined by our panel, two-time U.S. Representative Paul Hodes, columnist and political analyst Alicia Preston, and campaign manager and former senior staffer Matt Robeson. Over the past week, President Biden stopped negotiating with one Republican senator and started negotiating with another in an effort to get a deal done on infrastructure that both parties could agree to, and one that could get 60 votes, since that's what it's going to take to pass anything in the Senate. But this new potential deal is raising more questions than it's answering. On the left, Bernie Sanders says he's a hard no because the deal wouldn't do enough on climate and other needs. On the right, Republicans haven't produced the 10 senators needed to pass it, only five. And in the middle, some Democrats say they won't back it unless centrist senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema commit to voting for a second bill, which would have a laundry list of other more liberal policies. So now it looks like we have a priority that both parties agree on infrastructure descending into chaos. Is there any way out of this mess? And will senators find it, Alicia? You know, I don't consider negotiations or compromise chaos. I think that's great. Will they be able to come to an agreement? I don't know. But I think this negotiation process is is a good thing. It's not one side saying all or nothing. I think the Bernie Sanders of the world who say, give me everything I want or I'm a no, I don't think that's how Congress is supposed to function. Um, we need some infrastructure structure done. A lot of what's in that original plan is good. A lot of it is wasteful and unnecessary or most importantly, just unrelated to infrastructure. But if they can come to an agreement on actual infrastructure that is needed, then that's good. I really don't like this proposal or this request that uh, Manchin or anyone else has to promise to agree to all the other stuff they don't agree with in this bill in order to get votes for this bill. That may be negotiating, but that's more strong arming. I mean, get together, guys, give us what we actually need and stop the, you know, pandering to the left, because a lot of the stuff that was in that original infrastructure program had nothing to do with infrastructure in the Biden proposal. So I don't know. I don't think negotiation is chaos. I think it's part of the process. Um, we'll see if it's successful, I guess, probably within, it's not going to be within the summer. It'll be within a year. <laughs> <laughs> Congressman Hodes. You know, I agree with Alicia. I, I, uh, I don't, I, I don't think we're talking about chaos. I think we're talking about a really big piece of legislation that uh, both parties have long said they wanted some of at any rate. Um, everybody, you know, if, if you have uh, uh, 400 different members, every one of them will have a different take on what they want in a bill. If you have 100 senators, they'll all have a different take on what they want in and what they want out. And what they want in and what they want out depends on not only their leanings, but their constituency, uh, where they're standing in the polls and what they are looking ahead at in terms of uh, the upcoming upcoming elections. So um, I think there's probably general agreement that some form of infrastructure bill is important. Um, the left is very unhappy if uh, the infrastructure bill does not include 
climate and energy and other proposals. The right is very unhappy because of the price tag. The president, who is, by the way, um, uh, actually a much better negotiator than his Democratic predecessor, President Obama, is trying to thread the needle and and wait it out or pull people together. Joe Manchin, the the who is now you know increasingly being seen as the the linchpin of the Senate. He upon whom everything turns, what will Manchin say? Um, kind of the democratic alternative to the way Mitch McConnell controlled things as as the uh, as the leader. Uh, but but Manchin is, you know, he's 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 not quite second string. He's vaulted into the top ranks and he wants it to be bipartisan. So the negotiations are going to go on and on and on. Dick Durbin uh, said recently, you know, this is kind of healthcare or Obamacare deja vu. We waited a year to 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 see whether the Republicans would come along and they never did. And it may be that the Republicans will never come along, that all they want to do is jam up the president and jam up the Senate and 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 try to nickel and dime this thing so low that 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 nothing happens. And then they can complain that the Democrats didn't deliver on their promise of of an infrastructure bill in the end. um, You know, it's the it's the usual. I think it's kind of just the usual Sturm und Drang of uh, working a complicated piece of legislation through a big body of um, immature uh, people. So everybody, everybody wants something. They're all going to jump up and down, you know, and 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 President Biden will just play, keep on playing whack-a-mole. One head pops up, he'll pop it down, you know, that, uh, so I'm not, I, I'm, I'm adopting a wait and see. Meanwhile, it makes for good press coverage to talk about who's on first, what's on second. It's, it's kind of a three stooges approach to media. Um, let's see where we can find conflict and make it sound like a fight and do all that. Meanwhile, they're doing the horse trading and the wrangling. And eventually we're going to get an infrastructure bill, I think. I think it will be a lot less than Biden originally proposed, which is why he originally proposed such a huge piece of legislation, because like any good negotiator, he knew that um, it, he would get uh, his his ankles Uh, trimmed. And that's what's going on. So, you know, we'll wait and see. Matt Robeson. Quite as sanguine as uh, Paul and Alicia about this, because as Paul said at the beginning uh, of his comments there, um, this is really important stuff. Um, You know, there's a lot at stake here. We're talking about $1.2 trillion and the economy of our country. It's it's a big deal, but I do, I do agree. It, it's worth to, to understand what's going on. I don't, I don't think this is just like immature babies kind of like, you know, throwing mud at each other. There's an awful lot of thinking and calculus going on here. Um, and it's worth kind of thinking about the strategy from each party's standpoint for Senate Republicans. This is good either way. If this all doesn't ultimately work out and Mitch McConnell said he thinks there's about a 50-50 chance of getting an infrastructure bill. So, you know, maybe that's right. If it doesn't work out, well, they look like they're trying. They get to blame the left 
for the failure of the infrastructure bill. If it does work out, then their thinking is that it will kill the rest of Joe Biden's agenda because they'll essentially crowd out the available spending that can be done. They'll sort of use up the political capital to spend stuff and they'll get it on something that they kind of want anyway, which is infrastructure, which actually the majority of Republicans do support. So that's why they're pursuing this, you know, they are taking a wait and see approach, but they're, they're keeping their options open. For Joe Biden, if Republicans are setting a trap of trying to crowd out the rest of the agenda, it's a trap he wants to fall into. He has been from the beginning trying to lay out a getting caught trying strategy in terms of all the stuff that the left has been demanding. And we've seen them demanding it for the last two years since the height of the Democratic presidential primary. He knows that he can't get all of it done. So he's going to try and get caught trying. And in the meantime, he is going to get through some awfully significant stuff. The American Rescue Plan, which cut child poverty in half, deals with the economy, deals with vaccination and public health. There would, of course, be this infrastructure bill, which if he could get it through would be a massive long-term economic investment. We just passed in the Senate the Endless Frontiers Act that got 68 votes. It was a strong bipartisan bill that deals with industrial policy, investing in manufacturing capacity to counter China. And under the surface, his administration is doing an awful lot on these other liberal priorities like climate. He just suspended drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. He's uh, undoing more than 100 Trump-era environmental regulations. He's, he just repealed a Trump-era regulation that made it harder for the EPA to issue standards on air pollution. So, and, and Merrick Garland just announced that he's doubling the number of lawyers on civil rights enforcement when it comes to voting. So I think this is actually working out just fine from Biden's standpoint. The final thing I'll say is, People like Bernie Sanders are smart. They see that this is working out from Joe Biden's standpoint. They see that Biden is happy to fall into this trap that crowds out the rest of their wish list. That's why they're so up in arms because they could end up getting cut out of the whole process. Well, President Biden is currently wrapping up his overseas trip this week as he consults with European leaders. And as we record this today, He's preparing for a meeting with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Based on what we've seen so far, is this trip a success for the U.S. and for the administration, Paul Hodes? President Biden will not be able to stand up to me when I meet with him. He is a weenie. He is American weenie. And I will dominate him just as I dominated predecessor Donald Trumpolpinski. There is no chance for U.S. anymore. Is is now third world country cannot keep their own house in order, and Russia will dominate. That said, um, it's awfully nice to have a real president meeting with our allies instead of an ignorant orange buffoon uh, who embarrassed us with uh, his antics. Uh, thinking back to the Mussolini chin as he pushed the uh, the representative, the, the prime minister of Montenegro out of the way to get to the front of the pack, his truculent refusal to shake hands with Angela Merkel in the White House. I mean, oh, I thought you were going to talk about him licking Putin's boots in Helsinki. 
I was getting there because oh, okay. all, all of that just preceded the famous Trumpelthinsky Putin bootlicking uh, bootlicking episode in Helsinki, where Trumpelthinsky um, uh, basically took a contract out on our own intelligence services, uh, buying everything that Putin spoon fed him. Here, Donald. Try this now. Mm, you think his borscht is not? Is 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 bad news for your intelligence services? You can believe me when I deny, 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 deny. I had nothing to do with no cyber hacking. I never do that kind of thing. I'm a nice guy, really. And but but Biden, I think, has has now gone a long way towards restoring American credibility with our allies. Uh, America first uh, is a is a fond memory for Trump and for nobody else. Uh, the polling uh, in the world shows that people see that America is back, as Biden says. He understands multilateralism. He understands how important it is to stand up to Putin. There's been some real progress, not just show progress at the meeting of the G7 and at NATO uh, that uh, will stand us in good stead internationally. And it is a huge relief, at least to me, to feel some restoration of international order. Alicia Preston, has this junket uh, been an overwhelming success? Look, I think it's been fine. I mean, there's been no gaffes. That's what people look for, right? Where did you trip up and do something stupid with a foreign leader? There's been none of that, which did occur with both of our last most recent presidents before President Biden. Wait, re- remind was, me wait, of the wait, Obama wait, wait, wait. ones. What, what was there? Obama? Like, Hold on. No, no, no. no. You don't get to sail through on that one. When, what, what, when did Obama Mike with a Russian president? I didn't say he licked his boots. I said gaff. Hot Mike with the former Russian president when he said, I'll be more flexible after the election. Yeah, That's a gaff. Uh, yeah, you got to give me that one. No, 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 you're right. Actually, I, I take it back. That is the definition of gaff. It's not It's not the same thing as Trump, but okay. Yeah, okay. I, I see. All I right. See, All I see right. What you're saying. All right. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> But on the Russian thing, now look, let me preface this with no one should ever take my advice when it comes to foreign diplomacy. It, it's I'm not good at it. Um, I, I would be gaff worthy because I don't like Putin. I think he's a really bad dude. Like this is a country where it's illegal to play Pokemon Go. Like forget the peaceful assembly. You can't play Pokemon Go, which is really unfortunate because it's quite fun. It's criminal. I mean, it's it, criminal it, to play it, Pokemon it, Go. I know that's, Russia. That, that's crazy. It's insane. It, it, he's a bad dude. It's not a good country. He arrests people for peacefully protesting. You know, he recently said about President Biden, um, don't blame the mirror if you're ugly. And he said that, I believe, yesterday because he was Biden criticized the crackdown on protesters in Russia. And Putin said it's the same as arresting people who, you know, attacked our capital on January 6th. The guy's just not a good dude. Unfortunately, he's incredibly powerful and has a big role in the world's economy and security. But um, I'm glad that. Sorry, my Republican friends, I'm going to give Joe Biden props. I'm glad he's being tough on Putin. Everyone should be tough on Putin. He is our arch nemesis just because we all grew up watching James Bond and all those things. So be tough on Putin. Don't put up with his crap. They're bad people. They're cyber attacking our companies, costing Americans millions of dollars and give him no leeway. And you go, Joe. Your thoughts, Matt Robeson. I think Alicia Preston makes a strong point when it comes to Pikachu diplomacy. I want to hear more developed about that concept. Uh, look, I, I actually give Joe Biden a little bit 
more credit here. Um, I, I, I don't just think it's it's fine. Although I, I, I kind of like that. Look, after what we've gone through recently, fine is great. We came out of the last set of these meetings. My gosh, we couldn't even agree on a mealy mouth, nothing diplomatic statement out of the last one saying that mob and apple pie are good. So um, the fact that we're getting anything fine would be good. But look, I mean, there, there's actually stuff to show for it. There was an agreement on vaccination, which is important for our own public health. We have got to vaccinate the world, not only for moral purposes, but also because we're going to continue to see COVID variants pop up unless we increase vaccination rates elsewhere. We ended a 17-year trade war on airplane manufacturing so that we can counter Chinese airplane manufacturing. That is a, a big deal that's very important for our domestic economy. We, got, we came out with strong language on climate um, which, it, which is good. We came out with an alignment, at least the start of an alignment on a global corporate tax floor so that you don't have big companies like Apple relocating their, their profits to Ireland so that they don't contribute anything in, in terms of their fair share in the American economy. And look, the most important thing in my mind is it's not just Putin, who I agree is a bad dude. Um, you know, it's also China. They're obviously um, a big factor in all of this. And on the Great Ideas Show, which is going to be broadcast on Thursday on WKXL, it'll coming out as a podcast uh, a week later, I had an, an expert on international diplomacy, on European-U.S. relations. He points out, look, Europe is one-sixth of the global economy. It has 450 million people, and its regulatory standards set the pace in many sectors of the international economy. They are our natural allies. It seemed like Donald Trump never really got that. And Joe Biden at a very fundamental level by making this his first overseas trip really does get it. He sees this as us positioning ourselves with powerful friends against the authoritarian impulses of China and Russia. That's extraordinarily important, not to mention all of the progress that we can make that helps American people, the American middle class, on uh, economic uh, bilateral deals, climate um, standards, vaccinations, as I mentioned. So I, I think it's actually both at a high level strategic uh, consideration plan and at some of these you know, lower level tactical agreements like on airplane manufacturing. I, I think it's been a big success so far. You know, and one of the things that you we note from the party that Alicia Preston leads is that there has been a a rather muted response? I think um, certainly, at least according uh, if 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 we're, what we read in the news is any is any guide to the response from the Republicans, uh, it it's almost as if there's a return to those halcyon days of of uh, foreign policy um, is is bipartisan, stops at the water's edge. Uh, let's you know. Let's not uh, drop the dime on our president when he's overseas. Um, I mean that it, that's there's a decided shift in tone uh, about all that going on. If I am not mistaken, and who knows if that is going to last, but at least for now, that's really good news for our economy, for our international relations, for what we need to do to move forward in the world. Uh, and I'm glad to see it from Republicans. And Alicia, I commend your colleagues for their perspicacity, for their temperance, 
for their prudence and modesty in the face of this enormous success that Democratic President Joe Biden has achieved with his first singularly victorious international trip. By the way, anyone, I, I, uh, I just want to, well, oh, sorry, Ken, I was, I was just going to say, because we've spent a good amount of the last five or 10 minutes dumping on Donald Trump, who richly deserves it, I will say, I, I don't think that it's a blanket statement that he was a failure in all international relations matters. He actually made some progress on the Middle East. He, the, the, you know, like the, the progress of the recognition of Israel from uh, Arab countries was a good thing. I mean, it's not like, I, I, I don't want it to sound to our listeners like we're all just being kind of partisan in, in, in our appraisal here. I just think that if you really look at it in terms of our strategic interests and some of the you know details of, of what's been accomplished, this is an awfully good start from the standpoint of the interests of the American people in terms of our foreign diplomacy under the Biden administration. And I'll just note as the Republican on this panel, I, as you may be aware, tend to stay away from talking about the former president. And there's a couple of reasons for that. But one is it used to drive me crazy when President Obama and people who supported him used to constantly talk about George W. Bush as though he were still in the White House. I just think whether you liked him or don't like him, he's not in office anymore. Let's move on and judge Joe Biden by the by what he's doing, not necessarily in comparison to a guy who has no power anymore. That 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 I hear your point, and it would be wonderful for you and the party you lead if that, in fact, was all there was to it. But there's no way to talk about Joe Biden's uh, sensational performance overseas, uh, except by comparison, except by comparison to the orange buffoon who preceded him and embarrassed us as a leader because part of the uh, the a big part of the job that Biden had to do here was to help recover american uh, credibility um uh, from the low point that uh, was caused by uh, your former president well i will say that if you're going to characterize this trip as sensational comparison to something not good would be the only way to come to that conclusion my question is, how do we actually make Alicia the head of the, at least the New Hampshire yeah. Republican Party? Can we can no. we get to work on that? No, yeah. no, I don't lead anything. I have three dogs. I don't even lead a pack of dogs in my house. Trust me. <laughs> is, that, is anyone disappointed that we're not going to be getting a, a joint press conference between uh, Biden and Putin and Putin? Uh, Paul is richly disappointed <laughs> because he was hoping to do his Vladimir Putin impression for the entire show next week, we were actually going to book just for, you know, 45 minutes of um, Putin and and uh, maybe Ken, I think you were going to be Biden, but or a programming <laughs> that's note, that's not going to happen. I, I, I am personally very disappointed in this no joint press conference. And my plan was to ride bare chest into press conference on big white horse and get down and let horse make big ploppy on Joe Biden. This week, Democratic Congresswoman Ilan Omar prompted a public rift among Democrats when she tweeted, and I quote, we have seen unthinkable atrocities committed by the U.S., Hamas, Israel, Afghanistan, and the Taliban, end quote. A group of Jewish Democrats condemned Congresswoman, uh, Congresswoman Omar for appearing to equate the U.S. and Israel with the Taliban and Hamas, forcing Omar 
to clarify that she was speaking of specific incidents and uh, not making a moral comparison. Republicans have been trying to uh, make a big deal of the issue ever since. Is this a real issue, Alicia, or just a bit of political hot air that will waft away? I think it's both. Look, I don't blame all Democrats for the actions, behaviors, or words of Representative Omar any more than I think Republicans should all be held responsible for Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's a whack job. Um, Representative Omar is an anti-Semite. She, I don't think she tries to hide it in any way. Um, she has mocked Jewish Americans for dual loyalty with a quote, something like, it's all about the Benjamins. She has made this comment here where she compares Israel and the U.S. with Hamas and the Taliban. Um, she got reelected, which I don't understand. My one disappointment is this. Um, Nancy Pelosi, and she was on one of the weekend shows, uh, was asked about it and said they did not rebuke her for her comments because she clarified them. The comments are not clarifiable. I mean, she compared you said the u.s and israel are like hamas and the taliban in the atrocities that they committed that is not an explainable statement beyond what it actually just says so i'm disappointed that democratic leadership in congress did not rebuke representative omar as republican leadership did rebuke marjorie taylor green when she went off her rocker and went outside what should be considered pro appropriate decorum when you are a united states congressman paul Hodes. Well, uh, as a former Jewish congressman, uh, I you converted. Uh, uh, okay, as a Jewish former congressman, there you go. How, how's that better? Of course, that's better. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, if you if you ask my kids, they'll tell you that I'm a pagan. I'm jumping the hibachi on June 21st. But as a Jewish former congressman, I rebuke. Elon Omar for her uh, remarks equating the U.S. Uh, with Hamas. Um, Hamas is a terrorist organization. The United States is not. Uh, I, um, I do not always support the conduct of the Netanyahu-led government of Israel. Uh, I think there's a lot to be discussed about the conduct, but Israel has a right to defend itself. Um, and Omar is just, she's just out of bounds. You know, I agree with Alicia. I think she, she harbors serious anti-Semitic feelings. Um, she's made a number of statements over time that make clear uh, that she's off the reservation. Um, when, and, and she speaks in very extreme terms about, uh, things that, while they're 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 huge issues and concerning, uh, really need to be treated with steadiness and temperance. Our relationship with Israel um, is vital; it's uh, foundational for us and for Israel. Um, and I, um, I, I'm you know, I mean, Omar Omar is a Democrat. That's good. Um, but she ought to watch what she says. Um, and I think that the, the move to censure her or censor her, um, censoring is not necessarily really something you do with a, another member of Congress, but I think that my uh, colleagues in Congress who spoke out forcefully against this kind of language um, have a real bone to pick. And I think that she does not do... Uh, do the Democrats uh, a service or the country a service uh, speaking the way she does. Matt Robeson, your thoughts? 
her statement was completely idiotic. And uh, boy, it's it, it is Alicia's right. So is Paul. Alicia's right. I mean, we've unfortunately seen this from her again and again. And really the only reason that Speaker Pelosi did not condemn her more forcefully is the math such a slim democratic margin and the members of the squad, including Rashida Taleb, who came to Ilhan Omar's defense over the weekend saying that she was, her rights of free speech were somehow being shut down because a Muslim woman can't speak out in Congress. She spoke out. She, she spoke freely. Uh, I don't think that's the problem here. Um, you know, the, the members of the squad could on their own, those four undo the democratic majority in the house. Um, so obviously, Speaker Pelosi has to watch her politics. And I think that is really, you know, where, where Alicia started off with it's both. It's both a stupid incident that will waft away as a case of political hot air and pointing to something deeper. I think that's right. And I think Speaker Pelosi's dilemma in terms of the numbers in the House speaks to a larger dilemma that Democrats are going to have to face up to. The fact of the matter is, that there is a growing segment on the progressive left that sees this Israel-Palestinian situation in domestic U.S. racial terms, in domestic U.S. social justice and racial justice terms. Obviously, the two situations are profoundly different, very different history, very different dynamics, very different politics. But during the recent eruption of violence between Hamas and Israel, which had a lot of uh, uh, casualties on, on both sides, disproportionately on the Palestinian side, there were protests around the world. There were placards in London that adopted the language in, the, in these protests against Israel of the American progressive left and the Black Lives Matter movement saying, Palestine can't breathe and Palestinian lives matter. The fact of the matter is that there is a growing segment of young progressives who see the, the Israeli issue in those terms, who are starkly against US support for Israel, not just the Israeli government, but for Israel itself. And there is a reckoning coming at some point because that is at odds with the bulk of where the Democratic Party stands and has stood historically. And there is a potential for a real rift here. So yes, I, I, I agree we can kind of wave away the, the idiocy of what Representative Omar said. And she's an intelligent person who I hope will not repeat this mistake again and again. But make no mistake, there is a real undercurrent here. And you know, the final thing I'll say is ask any young Jewish person on a campus in America today, if they feel comfortable defending Israel, if they feel comfortable speaking out on behalf of Israel, given campus politics these days, I would wager you that they do not. And this has become, this has become a real divide on the left. You know, Matt, you raise a really important point in terms of the blindness of people to the the what the history and situation in Israel uh, as opposed to uh, the racial dynamics in this country 
Um, and and we, we have to also understand that all of this occurs, um, at least in this country, with a with a enormous rising tide of anti-Semitic hate speech, anti-Semitic conduct, anti-Semitic acts, um, uh, which um, basically constitute domestic terrorism. So speech from a member of Congress and support for that speech from other members of Congress that that um, uh, that that give any any more moment or credibility to that kind of uh, business that's going on is really is damaging and it's uh, cons- it, it's concerning. Um, uh, so that I, I just want to say that 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 the rising tide of anti-Israel sentiment is understandable because Israel has needed to act forcefully to defend itself, sometimes in ways that I have supported, sometimes in ways that I do not. I mean, Netanyahu has not uh, uh, necessarily been my favorite uh, leader uh, of all time. I don't think his policies have promoted peace. But given the history of that region, and and this was really brought home to me when I visited Israel, it was it was actually the only trip I took as a member of Congress was to Israel to get a sense of what it means to live in a sliver of a country surrounded by hostile um, hostile actors. Uh, when you go there and you you realize how small the country is, how surrounded it has been by hostile, uh, hostile and aggressive action. You get a whole different sense of what it means to to be in Israel and to live all the time under the shadow of rocket attacks and terrorism. Well, a major scandal started to unfold in Washington over this past week after the disclosure that the Trump Justice Department had security. Uh, seizing phone records at, uh, uh, I should say, uh, secretly, the administration was seizing phone records of reporters at major media outlets, as well as phone records and emails of two Democratic members of Congress, their aides, and even their family members in a search for leaks of information. President Biden and Attorney General Garland have said that prosecutors will no longer be permitted to use that tactic. Some have charged that this was an effort to weaponize law enforcement to go after people the administration saw as opponents. What do you make of this? And what are the implications of these revelations, Alicia? I don't think anyone's phone record should be able to be seized unless they're accused of a crime. And uh, a judge sees there's probable cause to do that. If this was indeed just to search for leaks, and, you know, there's two different kinds of leaks. There's leaks where people make leaks that they probably shouldn't because you're in a private meeting, but it's not illegal. Then there is illegal leaks of government information. The latter can and should be investigated, but not by who received it. You can't go seizing phone records or email records from members of the media. Receiving a, a leak is not a crime, um, regardless of what has happens on the other end. So I don't know, you know, these Democratic congressmen and aides, I don't know if they were being accused of a crime or if they were just looking to see who was leaking information to the press on a non-criminal level. But I think what so since I don't know that, I can't really judge it. What does bother me is that members of the media 
were having their personal information and their communication tracked. And that's a big deal. And I know, I know the media was biased against Donald Trump. I know they were unfair to him and we saw the majority of them and we see it. And I know that made a lot of people hate the press, but the press is vital to our democracy, vital to our democracy. We need a free press that can keep a check and balance on our government. A lot of my political brethren on the Republican side liked that they could get their information from Donald Trump directly via Twitter. Well, I always said, and that's all they needed. We have to have more than just what the government wants to tell us. We have to have that third party, or in this case, the fourth estate that sees what's going on, reports it a little more unbiasedly than maybe they did the last four years, but at least we could know what's going on more than just what members of our government want to share with us. And so I think the press is vital to our democracy. I do not believe in any infringement upon them. Um, And I think where they can check themselves and get back into a little less biased behavior is, and we've seen it in ratings in the past year, is their market's going to change and they're going to have to, you know, realize that people aren't watching them because of some perceived bias that they don't agree with. Well, you know, it's a free market. They're going to change how they act, but we still have some, you know, newspapers and print media that we can trust what's not on the editorial pages. And so I would condemn any act to silence members of the press simply for being in opposition to the government. Congressman Hodes. This is a really serious matter. Um, I think it's really serious um, I, I listened to Eric Swalwell, um, uh, last night and, uh, Swalwell apparently, uh, had his, uh, records, uh, looked at seized by the justice department beginning in 2017 and continuing, um, for, for years. Um, as he said, the only thing he could divine was that he was an outspoken critic, of the president uh, early on, um, and it continued. This uh, appears to be a classic authoritarian uh, misuse of the levers of power to go after political enemies. Um, the, Trump hated the press, uh, so he went after them. He hated anybody who criticized him, so he went after them. If, if assuming that that this all is it, that this is what happened, that he misused the Justice Department as his own Stasi, his own SS, his own KGB, his own secret police to stifle uh, dissent and to try to get dirt on his enemies. It has serious implications, um, not only for those who, who did these things, elite, because it's illegal, um, uh, and number two, it has serious implications for the future of the presidency. Uh, There's talk that Trump is going to run again. Um, If he were to run again and get elected, um, uh, he would do this all over again um, and and double down. Um, This needs to be investigated. We need to find out precisely what happened. Um, To hear that uh, Barr, Sessions, and Rosenstein who were seniors at the at the Justice Department during this uh, the alleged conduct? Don't recall whether or not it occurred, or don't have who have suddenly suffered hazy recollections is 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 a red flag for me. Uh, if you were in charge of the Justice Department and there were going to be 
phone records of Congress, members of Congress, their staff and the media subpoenaed. You better know what was going on. And you absolutely did know what's going on. So I think there, you know, the, the public may or may not be able to pay attention to this. Uh, in the in the blizzard of news information. But this is a big deal. It is a really big deal for our democracy. It's a really big deal for the way Trump uh, conducted the presidency. It is yet another black, uh, a, a black stain on his on his on his incredibly, incredibly defective presidency. Yeah. I think that this issue is more complicated than it appears on the surface. I actually agree with some of the nuance that Alicia was introducing in her comments. And I would suggest that we should be cautious about this and not jump to too many conclusions before we do more investigating. It is true, Paul is right, that there is an ample record evidence of abuse of the Department of Justice for partisan political purposes. A Trump administration whistleblower came forward and showed that Attorney General Barr under Donald Trump had used the power of the Justice Department to go after the cannabis industry, not for any particular legal reason, just because he wanted to go after what he perceived to be political enemies. There's certainly a strong odor of that possibility when you hear that the Trump Justice Department went after the phone records of journalists and of Democratic members of Congress and their aides and their family members. There's every reason to be suspicious of that. But, but, Alicia is right that in some cases, reporters may have received classified, highly classified information And there can be a legitimate investigative purpose to subpoenaing those kinds of records to find out who has revealed classified information. Let's also remember that both parties, including the administration of former President Barack Obama, have conducted these kinds of investigations, record grabs, into journalists. In 2016, James Risen, a former reporter for the New York Times who underwent a seven-year legal saga because of the seizure of his own records, wrote that press freedom advocates fear that under Senator Jeff Sessions, who was then tapped to be the attorney general under President Trump, that under him, the Justice Department will pursue journalists and their sources at least as aggressively as Mr. Obama did. If Mr. Sessions does that, Obama handed him the roadmap. And that is, unfortunately, a legacy that Democrats have to contend with. It is, I am fine to condemn the Trump administration for these kinds of activities, but Democrats can't deny that President Obama and his Justice Department also undertook very aggressive investigations into the revelation of classified information, and they seized records of journalists in a very similar way. Now, Whether there are justifications for that, because we're talking about revealing highly classified secret information, that's a a matter for investigation. And I, I just would submit to our listeners that this is complicated. It is it is not necessarily another case of because Trump did it, it's bad, because Obama did it, it's good. 
there are wrinkles to all of this. And I, I for one, would like, to, I'm, I'm certainly willing, based on the ample available evidence, to say what Trump did here, what his AG did here is bad. There's plenty of evidence that they did a ton of bad things to the Department of Justice. But I do think that this is a case of let's investigate before we draw firm conclusions. And that is going to have to wrap it up for this edition of Balance of Power. For Alicia Preston, Paul Hodes, and Matt Robeson, I'm Ken Kale. Join us next time for Balance of Power.